everybody, and welcome to Will This Be On The Test. I'm Maddie. I'm Austin. And we're here today to talk to you about things that you didn't learn in school or sh- and should have. Or things that they, they didn't teach you right, or things that they just only taught you part of and left out the best parts. Or the worst parts in my case. The worst parts? Yes. Oh, I'm excited and terrified. You should be. I already told him that one of his heroes is going to be a little bit dinged up in this one. Lin-Manuel Miranda? Uh, that's not possible. Okay, good. And in no small part because this guy was dead long before Lin-Manuel Miranda, the guy I'm talking about today. Okay, good. Because as as long as Lin is okay. I will be, like, incredibly upset if bad things ever come up about Lin-Manuel Miranda. You know, I heard once... He forgot to hold the door open for somebody. I actually get really, really offended by that. People holding doors open or not holding doors open? Not holding doors open. Because I also know people get offended by people holding doors open. I've encountered that. It's like, I don't need you to hold a door for me. I'm like, it's just basic politeness. Yeah, I'm not like going to hit you in the face with a door just because you think it's chivalry or something. I don't know. I'm just being a good person. I hold this for everybody. We're Midwesterners. It's like, we can't even, like, get near somebody's personal space without going, oh, didn't see you there. I posted, I tweeted about this, God, probably over a month ago now. Have you ever thought about the fact that when there is a door that is closing, whether it's a regular door or an elevator door, we run to catch it before it closes, which would expend way more energy than just opening the door when it closes? I have never thought of that. And yeah, we absolutely do that. And I kind of get it when it's one of those doors that you have to have, you know, a key for or one of those cards that you know you ding and it unlocks the door because that is just a there's such something frustrated about when that door closes and you're like dang it now i have to ding my key card yeah why do we run for doors when we know that we are fully capable of opening them i will say like i will run for a door if i'm carrying stuff in my hands but and case, i don't want to have to like fumble with stuff to you open can it. often also say please hold the door and people will do it not you no. Never you. Never me, because I, I don't want you to make you feel emasculated. It's true. She holds the door for everybody except for me. I slam it. It's true. When she she holds the door closed and laughs. <laughs> Are you ready for uh, my big unpopular opinion? Okay. The uh, National Lampoon's Vacation movies. Not that funny. Never seen them. They're not that funny. People the boy talk in about them was Johnny Galecki, though, wasn't it? I have no idea. But like just watching them, it's like, why? This is just... Why? There are so many movies in like the whole National Lampoon's universe that I've seen a few of them and it's why? Yeah. I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm just my let me let me get super pretentious and assholeish <laughs> for a second. Maybe my tastes are just too refined. There's not nearly enough thought jokes. <laughs> Says the guy who has been like, Ooh, what of the Cinderella story movies? I haven't seen this one yet. Or um laughed for a solid hour at Rent being part of the Broadway canon. <laughs> He was imagining- Rent being put into the Broadway canon. Yeah. (laughs) Well, today, this week is Dr. Seuss week at elementary schools across the country. You probably remember celebrating that as a kid. Yes. Even when we were in fifth grade, we were like, please stop. Because for some reason, elementary schools- Have you ever noticed elementary schools focus on the younger grades and kind of forget the older grades are there? Yeah. Like, that's kind of one of the benefits of, I think, a K through eight school is that they don't have that option. And then they can also have the older grades work with the younger grades while fifth grade and first grade are a little too close together. Eighth grade and first grade aren't. But Dr. Seuss was like this big fucking deal. And we read the books and we talked about what a great, what all the great things he did, and all these amazing things. Yeah, you've probably also heard some things about Dr. Seuss. You're I've a heard, librarian. I've heard some things about Dr. Seuss. 
like, all, like in in addition to him doing all the soldier stuff, he was also like vehemently against the Nazis and do some very like he attacked the Nazis a lot. He was not just children stuff; he did a lot of adult things too. Yeah, and he we have also, no first. We have no problem with him being anti-Nazi. No, we have no problem with him being anti-Nazi. He's just not just a children's person, and that's all I know. Oh, well, we're going to get into some stuff then. Really? Yeah, like, he... I'll get into it. You'll remember some of the stuff as we go. I got stuff from history.com, Wikipedia, List First, History Naked, Biography, USA Today, and NPR. Dr. Seuss. I'm sure you know that he was not born with the name Dr. Seuss. Yep, Theodore Geisel. Theodore Seuss Geisel. Seuss is his middle name. In Springfield, Massachusetts, on March 2nd, 1904, his parents were German immigrants, and the name Seuss was actually pronounced Zeus. Zeus? Yep. Theodore oh. Zeus Geisel. But the Americanized version uh, that sounded kind of like juice stuck around because we can't let people keep their own cultures. Oh, God, no. And he also went by Ted. 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 Ted Geisel. Like, Ted as in, like, Ted from How I Met Your Mother, Ted? He's not that. Well, no, he actually does end up being kind of that kind of gross. Oh, no. But that's actually one of his, no, I don't know if it's one of, it's one of his lesser sins because it affects fewer people, I think. Oh, man. I'm just realizing there's very few Teds that are not awful. Like Ted Nugent, Ted Bundy, uh, (laughs) Ted Cruz. You mean the Zodiac Killer? Yeah. (laughs) So I couldn't find a whole lot about his childhood. His parents owned a brewery. His dad became the supervisor of the public park system when Prohibition closed them. He and his sister Marnie dealt with a lot of anti-German sentiment when World War I broke out. He wasn't big on public appearances. You probably know that. Yes. Like he, he was, they thought he was a recluse. Uh-huh. That's not the case, actually. He was actually very social, and he liked going places and doing things. The reason he didn't do appearances was because of another Ted, Roosevelt. Oh. Mm-hmm. No, what did... When little Ted Geisel was 14 years old, he was one of 10 Boy Scouts to sell the most war bonds in Springfield, Massachusetts. So they went to this big public ceremony where Roosevelt was handing out medals. They only gave him nine medals. He got to little Ted Geisel, and instead of handling it in an Obama-type way, where it was like, oh, they must have given me too few. We'll get that taken care of, kid. He handled it more like an orange monstrosity and screamed, what's this little boy doing here? Why? You're ruining two heroes. Little Ted Geisel was ushered off the stage by his scout leader and was afraid of public appearances for the rest of his life. You've ruined two heroes. Why are you doing this to me? Except for the time he wrote a minstrel show to pay for a school trip. It was called Chickapee Surprised, but maybe he felt safer being in public because he didn't look like himself. It was a minstrel show. He was in blackface. He was in blackface. Now, it is important to remember that this was the 19-teens at this point, where vaudeville and minstrel shows were still very much a thing. Nobody really, no white people really knew that this was not appropriate. That goes back to the whole, you know, people getting in trouble for it now when they did it 20, 30, 40 years ago. Guys, hindsight. You're allowed to look back at something and go, yeah, that I didn't know that was fucked up and now I do and I'm sorry. That's all we're looking for. I didn't yeah. know. Like, at the same time, though, when I was 11, I had a teacher try to get me to do blackface. What? <laughs> yeah. In the 90s. In Oklahoma. Oh, okay. So she assigned everybody in our class a book we had to read and we were supposed to dress up as the main character to give our final presentation in first person. I was the only person assigned a character outside of my own race. We had a diverse group of students, and I was the only one assigned a character outside of my own race. Okay. She was trying to entrap me. 
she oh my god she was trying to like ruin your future political career by like look at look at young maddie in blackface well i went home that day and i said to my mom like mom i just knew it didn't feel right so if 11 year old me in 1997 can figure out that blackface is not cool 25 year old people in 1997 should have been able to figure it out because they knew the history i did do the assignment there was no getting out of it did not darken my skin never even thought i should do that I looked at the cover. She had pigtails, so I put pigtails on, and I wore a pink dress because she was wearing a pink dress because I was yep. not going to do blackface. And my mom, if, she, if my teacher had insisted, oh boy, you would not want to deal with my mother on that. Oh no. So I am actually going to be calling him Geisel during all of this, okay. just because that is his actual name. And for some things, he's Geisel. For some things, he's Seuss. And I'm just doing Geisel for the sake of consistency. He would ultimately go to Dartmouth, where he was a frat guy. And the editor of their humor magazine called the Dartmouth Jack-O-Lantern, also called the Jacko, which is still around, has a bit of a web presence. A couple things have gone a little bit viral. Later, Mindy Kaling worked for them, as did Phil Lord and Chris Miller, who were the directors of the Lego movie. Oh. However, in 1925, he was like, fuck prohibition because he was a frat guy and got caught by the chief of police drinking with nine of his buddies in his room. As punishment, he wasn't luckily kicked out of Dartmouth, but he was told he could not do any of his extracurriculars, including being editor-in-chief of the Jacko, which is how he became Seuss. He kept <laughs> secretly working for them as a cartoonist and a guest on some theses under the name Seuss. Boy, I thought in the Prohibition, it was just illegal to transport it. It was fine to own it. I think it's something along the lines of a college campus situation. Oh. Based on the way it was written, I kind of wonder if there weren't regional rules as well. Maybe. And they also might have been underage. Well, no, they wouldn't have been underage because the age was like 12 then. So yeah. I don't know. It's like, oh, cool. You can walk. Well, here's your whiskey, kid. Oh, yeah. Like you the other day. Oh, don't. Let's not talk about this. <laughs> <laughs> Austin doesn't drink. No, I get a really bad flesh reaction and kind of an itchy rash whenever I drink, so he I just gets, don't. He, he's allergic to alcohol. Well, we went to a baby shower the other day, and they did, the guys there did that, uh, who can drink this bottle the fastest, and it was apple juice and whiskey, and Austin hasn't had a drink in over a year. Got second place. Yeah. It's like, hey. They were so like. So it's like riding a bike, except if I was riding a bike, I would have fallen over. <laughs> because this was like a baby bottle full of whiskey. You survived, though. I survived. After Dartmouth, he went to Oxford to earn a doctorate in English literature so he could become a professor. There he met Helen Palmer, who convinced him to stop working towards his doctorate. She said, Ted's notebooks were always filled with these fabulous animals, so I set to work diverting him. There was a man who could draw such pictures and he should be earning a living doing that. The two of them would later get married in her brother's living room in November of 1927. Aww. And Helen would also become a children's book author. February 1927, they returned to the United States. This is before they got married. And there, Seuss began submitting and writing uh, cartoons and drawings and writing stuff for various publishers and publications. His first nationally published cartoon was in the Saturday Evening Post in July 1927. And that $25 payment let him move from Springfield, Massachusetts to New York City. $25. $25? Which in today's money is still only $370. But I guess things were cheaper back then. Yeah. He was hired as a writer and illustrator for the magazine Judge, a satirical magazine that ran until 1947. And he wrote some things under the name Dr. Seuss about starting about six months after he started working there. At least one of his cartoons was blatantly racist and used the N-word. Oh, oh, oh. Yes. He was a big fan of drawing African and African-American people as savages. Yeah, I'm also remembering that. 
now from the the uh, from the other works of Dr. Seuss books that have popped through the library I've like leafed through. Yeah, and that's not the worst he treated any group of people. There's also some really awful Asian stereotypes too that are just now coming back into my and head. And not just stereotypes. In 1928, he he created a cartoon mentioning Flit, which was a bug spray made by Standard Oil of New Jersey. A wife of of the ad executive in charge actually just saw this cartoon and told her husband she had to sign this guy. So he started making ads for them in 1928, and his campaign ran until 1941. And the slogan was, Quick Henry the Flit! And it caught on kind of like, Help, I've fallen, I can't get up, or Where's the Beef? And comedians used it in a lot of their pieces. The ads were, of course, super nice and kind and never contained images of blackface-like Africans being savages and saved by white people or negative stereotypes of Middle Easterners. Nope. Never happened. Advertising was so nice and clean. The Geisels, though, were basically living the dream, as this led to more and more work for him, but a lot of the work didn't need to be done during regular hours, so he and his wife literally traveled the world, like 30 different countries... And because her work also didn't need regular hours and they never had kids. So they didn't have any actual responsibilities to other people other than turning in their work and getting paid. And this kind of work could also be often be done on the road. So they traveled everywhere. He actually, though, began writing children's books, not because he wanted to, but because they were one of the few types of work he was allowed to do outside of his advertising agency per his contract. He was (laughs) not allowed to write books for adults for the most part. So you were growing up, grown up, and probably even as a librarian, you were told that his first book was And to Think That I Saw It on Mulberry Street, right? Um, I don't remember if that was, I've seen it, but I don't, I don't remember if that was his first or not. Yeah, it was, we were always told his first book was And to Think That I Saw It on Mulberry Street. It was the one that was rejected 27 times and blah, blah, blah. No, that was not his first children's book. He actually had a couple before that. Uh, they were... Kids basically answering how to solve problems, but the answers were always silly mistakes. And then he would illustrate them with the silly mistake happening. Sounds kind of funny, right? Yeah. And there was the first book, there was a sequel, and then there were at least two others plus some omnibuses. I can't tell if he wrote the third and the fourth one. Of course, omnibuses are just compilations. Want to take a guess about why we're never told about these books? No. Well, the first book's title is... The Pocket Book of Boners. Oh, no. The second book is called More Boners. <laughs> the third book is called Still More Boners. And the fourth one is called Prize Boners for 1932. <laughs> God. Please stop. This is too hard. Compilations were called The Omnibus Boners and The Second Boners Omnib- Omnibus. <laughs> That is also what women call all the dick pics they save. Omnibus, the boner's omnibus. The, bo- the boner's omnibus. Remember back then boner meant a silly mistake. Now it means something a little bit different. And oh. I think I've said boner more times in the last minute than I have in the rest of my life. <laughs> it's like so many bonus boners. His next book actually did fail. It was an alphabet book with different kinds of animals. And then Mulberry Street was rejected by oh, about... Wait, was this on Beyond Zebra or was this a different alphabet book with... It didn't say. Okay. It was a bunch of crazy animals. I don't think they were real animals. Um, Mulberry Street was rejected by about 27 publishers, although in some stories he made it as many as 43. And in true dramatic fashion, which I sure is totally real, just like stories that end with and then everybody applauded, he claims that he just was walking home to burn the book after his last rejection when he happened to run into a Dartmouth classmate who just happened to have gotten a job at Vanguard Press that very same day. (laughs) Seems real. 
Seems real. That really happened. The next three books were actually all in prose instead of poetry and written in historical periods, including the infamous, which you've probably heard of but never seen in the library, The Seven Lady Godivas, The True Facts Concerning History's Barest Family. What? I gather that the original version is worth a lot of money. It was republished later on in 1987. Basically, it's about seven sisters who, quote, were simply themselves and chose not to disguise it. (laughs) They were all dating brothers from the same family, the Peepers. Oh. (laughs) This was actually written for adults, as you might imagine. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to get into the whole plot. The plot is available online, but that's why we aren't taught about that one in school, because it's real. It's illustrated. What? It's illustrated. Oh, man. Then he wrote Horton Hatches the Eggs, which brought him back to poetry. Now, the whole point here is that we celebrate this man, but maybe we shouldn't because a lot of the things he did go directly against what we teach kids is okay. Like, if we taught kids these things, maybe they would start saying things like, Dr. Seuss did it, so why can't I? But he also did a lot of things, like um, like the sneeches and like talking about how like I'm maybe not talking segregation about, is bad. I'm not talking about the Godiva stuff right now. I'm talking about the other stuff you did. Kind of like teachers, including myself, hearing kids uh, say stuff like that, like the president says it, so why can't I? And I'm like, because it's racist. During World War II, he became a political cartoonist and did over 400 drawings for a left-leaning paper called the PM. This was a weird thing because left-leaning was liberal. Left-leaning was the Democrats by this point. And so left-leaning did mean they saw things like Hitler is bad and... Maybe we shouldn't be cool with, you know, killing Jewish people. Except they were also super, super, super fucking racist. They were also, but then back on the plus side, and I normally am not pro-war, but they were for us entering the war and very against people who were isolationist, the America first people. Yeah. And what we aren't taught in school is that we actually entered the war late, not because of any like oh, we can't afford another war kind of stuff, but because we didn't think it was that big of a deal that people were being genocided. We actually had an entire ship full of Jewish refugees show up on our shores and we told them to go away. We never get taught that in school. Yeah, actually, I was. Uh, there was a quote, I think it was, it wasn't an American, but someone said it's like, they turned away a bunch of Jewish refugees with like, like we don't have a Jewish problem and we don't want to import one. Um, the official reason was that they had quotas for how many people were allowed in from yep. certain countries. And they were told, and this might sound familiar, you just need to wait for your legal immigration visa like everyone yep. else. Actually, okay, um, I'm going to plug something. There's a book. It's uh, illustrated by Andrew Wienersmith from the SMBC Comics. Uh, it's about open borders and why we should have them. And the just inherent racism and backwards thinking of the quotas that we use in America. It's a great read. I'd recommend it. Back to your story. Yeah, they were like, but they were saying, you know, you don't, you need to get your visas and wait in line like everybody else. They were literally on a boat running from genocide. I always thought Canada let them come in. They did not. Things get really confusing because his cartoons somehow managed to be both racist and anti-racist. He exceptionally hated the Japanese, but he would claim that racism against black people and Jewish people was bad, not because it was immoral, but because it hurt the war effort. Because, you know, we need black people and Jewish people to fight and things like that. Meanwhile, um, the Nisei Japanese were one of the most highly decorated and largest casualty units in World War II, but go on. He was vehemently in favor of the internment camps. 
which we also brushed the fuck over in school. Yeah. Saying, but right now, when the Japs are planting their hatchets into our skulls, it seems like a hell of a time for us to smile and warble brothers. It's a rather rather flabby battle cry. If we want to win, we've got to kill Japs. Yeah. Oof. Nice guy. Nice guy. And he had uh, some lovely cartoons that went along with this idea. I have seen those cartoons. I had blocked out those cartoons and I'm remembering them now. So You're thank you. Then he decided he wanted to help more. So he joined the army. He was immediately made a captain and was the commander of the animation department making propaganda films. He made one called Our Job in Japan, which was expanded and commercially released as Design for Death. Which actually won the Oscar for Best Documentary. Dr. Seuss won an Oscar for a documentary that we probably don't... Twice? He won two Oscars. I can't remember what the other one was for because it wasn't as... He won for something that we probably don't want to talk about anymore. It covers the history of Japan and I couldn't find a ton about it. He actually thought that all copies had been destroyed. Oh. Like before he died, he believed all copies had been destroyed. Wow. They have not. You can still find it. There are at least clips of it on the internet. I did not watch them because I did not have time. But basically it sounds like it does have some really good information about early history and then gets progressively more racist as it gets closer to now. So I'm going to ruin some stuff for you now. Fun facts. Oh, oh, now we're just now we're ruining stuff. You haven't been ruining stuff. His propaganda was made with a couple of notable names. One was Chuck Jones, the director of Looney Tunes. The other was Stan Lee. Oh, Stan Lee and he, however, it doesn't sound like Stan Lee did the super racist stuff. He just did the kind of racist stuff about how to not catch venereal diseases, which are apparently rampant in the countries we're invading. They were globally rampant and Uh remain so until penicillin became a thing. Poor you. I'm allergic to penicillin too. Are we just, is this like the Austin allergy podcast? Hey, I'm I'm usually the one who has the allergies. You've got like two. I've got two and they've come up this... But yeah, so, so Stanley worked with Geisel on propaganda about how people in other countries have VD and you're going to catch it if you sleep with them. So I told you I was going to ruin Stanley when you're here just a little bit. But he did not do like the, hey, let's, you know, kill all the Japanese stuff. After all this, he went back to children's books. He actually moved into an observation tower because, you know, quirky. Wrote for 40 hours a week, only taking breaks to garden. In 1954, Life magazine said illiteracy among school children was because their books are boring. That's not how illiteracy works, kids. It doesn't matter how interesting or how boring your books are. That can affect your level of reading. The amount that you read does affect how well you read. But just because a book sucks, it doesn't mean that you get to be illiterate. Illiteracy is actually a higher end problem. So they decided to limit what kids could learn. And the director of the education division of Hofton Midland read a list of 348 words first graders should recognize, which sounds a lot like leveled reading that we still do, which is basically like, here's your reading level. Pick books within this. See, um, I'll say uh, my job, we say in so many words, fuck your reading level. Find something that interests you. Don't limit kids. Mm-hmm. Because finding like a topic you're interested in, you're going to read that better than you would some boring book about a puppy that you don't care about yeah and they also shame you for if you want to read a book below your reading level because yeah some, like sometimes you i still occasionally like i really feel like reading a wrinkle in time which mm-hmm. is definitely not written for people who are turning 34 this week okay, uh one of my favorite books i've read in a long time was the true meaning of smeck day which mm-hmm. they turned into that movie awful movie home mm-hmm. or the hate you give the hate you give. not written for adults but i am so glad i read it yeah. but it's below my reading level yeah it's like young adult books are great books, especially like 
if you're in like a reading slump or you just want to like get you just you just want to read they're great books these are really good books. But the thing is, basically, reading levels are bullshit because they also don't tend to let you stretch too far beyond them. Read what interests you. Yeah. If it interests you, you will figure out the context clues for the words you don't know. You might even go look them up. You all have a phone. You might be like, I don't know what kinesiology means and just look it up. Uh, kinesiology is college for Jim. <laughs> yes. He then asked Geisel to cut the list to 250 words and write a book using only those words. So the cat in the hat was born. I kind of hate the cat in the hat books. I find them dull as fuck. And also cats would not, they're not Mungo Jerry and Rumpelteaser. And that's what this guy, and this guy's no. a sociopath. First of all, this cat was very clearly the magical Mr. Mistopheles. Who's not a sociopath. Cat in the hat uh, is a sociopath. Mi- the, the magical Mr. Mistopheles is a sociopath. You saw him. Waiting for, waiting there for, um, audience surrogate cat, whose name I can't remember. It's like Tiffany or, I don't know. Ver- Veronica? Veronica, no. yeah. Whatever. Victoria. Vic- Victoria. Cat who doesn't matter. Yeah, I said it. Just waiting for her to be in danger so he can go in and rescue her in a desperate attempt to sleep with her. Poor You're thing. a monster, Mr. Mistopheles. I really hope that actress's career isn't ruined by this. That was the first thing she ever did. And she was actually quite good. You know, I'll say, I will say this for the cast of Cats. Good job. They did the best they could. Yeah. Except for you, Rebel Wilson and James Corden, you should be eternally ashamed of yourselves. See, I think they figured that out partway through the movie, though. Yeah. Um, after the war, he supposedly just magically stopped being racist. And Horton Hears a Who is supposedly an allegory for the American occupation of Japan. And he would also later dedicate a book to a Japanese person, you know, the people he wanted to wipe out. Mm-hmm. It was noted, however, that even in Horton Hears a Who, the Americans are a bit of the hero. And the bombings aren't mentioned. So it's still kind of racist. A person's a person, no matter how small, has also been co-opted by the anti-choice movement, which his second wife, we all have not really talked about, Audrey, objected to because she didn't think his work should be used to support people's views. After he died, she donated a lot of money to Planned Parenthood. So you can kind of see which side of that argument she fell on. This was a struggle for me at this point because he actually did declare himself to be anti-racist after a while. Even doing cartoons about about anti-racism in which insecticide is used to kill prejudice, to kill racial prejudice bugs. Like it was a long line of people and... They'd be like, we need to kill these bugs. And they would spray the insecticide into someone's ears mm-hmm. and out would pop the racial insecticide, the racial prejudice bug. So he did do some stuff afterwards that was like racism is bad. And people are allowed to grow and change. Yeah, I mean, it's, that's what we, like, we, we were talking about this earlier. Like the people who have like done something with blackface. Who knew I was like, what I did back then was wrong and I didn't know it. I think that might have been true with a lot of his anti-Japanese stuff because we were at war with Japan and it was the widely accepted sentiment amongst majority well, of Americans. Well, there's a big difference though between saying I don't like this group because we're at war with them and saying we need to exterminate. That them. was the widely held view in America at the Only time, by one even side. though it was wrong. And even then, if we had actually wanted to exterminate them, our internment camps would have done so. Yeah. And I will say that our internment camps did not exterminate them. We weren't... They weren't They weren't great. Actually, I was hearing about like the medical conditions there. These were not, like... Like, I will never defend them. They weren't the summer camps that we were kind of told they were in school, but they were not good. They were really not good. Yeah, George Takai talks about his time in them. And we forget that people are still alive who went through that. And George Takai is one of them, thankfully. Mm -hmm. Or is it Takai? Takai. Takai. It's okay to be Takai. But, like, on the other hand, he had been so violently racist and had made so much money off of it 
And he never actually apologized. He never actually said, I was wrong. And that's where part of this issue comes in for me, is it's one thing to change your mind, but when you're a public figure, to change your mind and never admit that you made a mistake, that's where I start to question whether or not you actually changed your mind. But also, he didn't speak in public a lot. It sounds like he spoke mostly through his work. He did interviews and stuff, yeah. and his wife spoke a lot for him, and he... Uh, through his comics, he did speak through his work, but none of it was ever an apology. Mm -hmm. And that's a part of what you need. We also don't talk about people who were racist but weren't murdering people, like the KKK. We learn about the KKK. We don't learn much about the general racism that was accepted. At best, we learn people who threw, like, tomatoes at Ruby Bridges. Yeah. We don't learn about the people who would just say nasty shit. And then, um, moving on, though, many of his more famous works are actually political in nature. Yertle the Turtle uh, was originally part of Judge Magazine as a hieroglyph, as well as a part, part of a comic strip he wrote. And he said Yertle was Hitler. And then, obviously, there's the Lorax, which I hate with every fiber how, of my How being. can you hate the Lorax? I've hated it since I was a kid. I think I felt preached to. And that's also one of the things, I'll get to this quote later, but he was against having morals in children's books. That whole book is a goddamned moral. Same thing with Oh, The Places You'll Go, which I also hate. Now that one I'll agree with you on. I don't like it. And the reason he didn't like morals is because kids can see them coming a mile away and they don't want to, they don't buy into your book anymore. And I'm like, but your entire book is a moral for okay, the Lorax. I, then I'm guessing you didn't, because the uh, well, kid is the Lorax. Like, okay, they're doing this. It's like, oh, you can run out of something. You can use so much of it, it's gone. That was like, this is the book that explained that to me when I finally got it. Because my parents had tried to explain it to me. It's like, okay, you've got this bunch of grapes. You've eaten them. There's all, they're all gone. It's like, but there's always more grapes. This was the, oh my God, there might not always be more grapes moment was reading the Lorax for me. When you as were a kid. 15? No, I was like <laughs> six or seven, like maybe eight. I hated it then. I hate it now. I've never liked books that preached to me. Helen Geisel, his wife, the first one, started getting sick. She had cancer. Being the stand-up guy he was, he went Ted Mosby and cheated on her while she had cancer. Oh, no. With a woman named Audrey D Diamond or Demond. And Helen killed herself as a result. So her response, she's like, she's got cancer. She feels like shit. The one person she thought she could trust was like, screw you during your cancer. So she killed herself. But it's cool because he married Audrey Diamond. So it all worked out for him. He never did have children saying, you have them, I'll entertain them. His second wife confirmed that he was ha he was happy never having kids. He also said, in mass, they terrify me. Now, people like to say that he was scared of kids, but he actually just said, in mass. Now, I want you to imagine a room of, like, think about a five-year-old's birthday party. Okay. That's kids of his of this age group in mass. And it is intimidating. And it's overwhelming. And it's a little frightening. Oh, God. It's just like a pile of smells and noise. So I don't think this confirms that he disliked kids as a, as a rule, just that he didn't want to be around them in a large group. They do chill out in middle school. I don't care what anybody says. Um, some sources even said that he and his first wife attempted to have kids, but it just never happened. In 1984, he got a special Pulitzer for his lovely writings because I guess they forgot about the racist shit. And there are also racist stuff in his books, like flat out racist, which I'll talk about in a minute. After his death... Uh, yeah, after his death, the University of San Diego named their library after him and Audrey, not Helen, the woman who encouraged him to write in the first place. He died in 1991 at the age of 97 of jaw cancer because he'd been a heavy smoker. Recently, in the last few years ago, Melania Trump tried to donate Dr. Seuss books to a Massachusetts school, but the librarian said, A, we are a well-funded school, we don't need your books, and B... These books are racist. What were the books? 
I think it was just a collection. So this kind of book donation is done annually by first ladies, but this was the first time they were rejected. Republicans tried to prove that there could not possibly be racism in them because the Obamas like these books. But we were taught growing we were taught growing up to ignore the racist fits, and there's a nostalgia part to it. Mm-hmm. The librarian, whose name was Liz Phipps, wrote an open letter explaining both the fact that her school doesn't need the books and that stories like If I Ran the Zoo contains caricatures of Africans and Asians. She even went on to say, why not go out of your way to gift books to the underfunded and underprivileged communities that continue to be marginalized and maligned by policies put in place by Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos? The NEA also recently dropped the cat in the hat as its mascot for Read Across America and is going to be focusing on books with diversity. Mulberry Street has a Chinese character with two two lines for eyes, a bowl of rice with chopsticks, and despite being Chinese, wearing Japanese-style shoes. If I Ran the Zoo, as I mentioned, has some images, which includes people from Africa shirtless, without shoes, and wearing grass skirts. There are blatantly racist images in these books that we just tell kids to just brush over and that these Im- we we are implying that these images are okay. There are also those though who argue that his books are actually anti-racist and anti-bullying because there are times where people are like a person's a person's no matter how small and I think it was the Sneeches that yeah, had the, the green sneeches. stars and yeah are the ones with no stars upon Lars yeah yeah so it's 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 a complicated thing uh-huh. but I think we can definitively say that for a good chunk of his working life, he got paid for being racist. It's as simple as that. At the end of the day, a lot of the love for Dr. Seuss for Geisel comes from nostalgia. People remember loving these books in the same way that they loved The Giving Tree. Then they read it as adults and go, oh, oh dear God. Uh, another guy who was shady as fuck was Shel Silverstein. Oh my God. There are some photos of him at the Playboy Mansion because he was like best friends with Hugh Hefner that are nasty. Like, I have seen more of Shel Silverstein's penis than anyone should ever have to see. His boners. His boners. <laughs> There's an entire omnibus of his boners. And it's like, it's like, it's like, uh, it's like, it's so skeezy. He's around these young women. And it's like, there's just his wangs flopping around. It's like gross. Helicopter, helicopter. <laughs> yep. Oh, Jesus. Um, now, a couple of books have of his have been censored, but not for the reasons you would think. First of all, censorship is bad. That's just a blanket statement. Hop on Pop was censored. The original version, you know how they're jumping on him and they're saying words that they have learned? Oh, yes, I remember this one. Did you ever try to jump on your dad as a result? Yeah, hell yeah. Yeah. Uh, one of the words was contraceptive. <laughs> but his editor actually bothered to read this book and made him cut it. <laughs> and then, of course, there's a walket in my pocket, which was censored in 1996. Was it? You've heard me talk about this. Was it the Wug under the rug? The Vug under the rug, rug. along with a few others. The scarier animals, including the Vug, were removed in the 1996 edition because they were so frightening. I am not okay with this. I do think that there needs to be a healthy amount of fear in children's books. But I don't mind saying that that Vug scares the shit out of me. Remember that episode of Doctor Who called The God Complex where they're in the hotel and if you go into the room that has your greatest fear, you're stuck forever? Mm-hmm. I'm watching it. I had not read or thought about this book in at least 20 years at this point, And the vug under the rug popped into my head and I knew that's what would be in my room. Uh, my greatest fear would be moving to Oklahoma. 
I don't think you can have a concept in your room, Austin. It would be, i just open up the room and it'd be it, like, welcome Oklahoma. to Oklahoma. <laughs> there would be, Hugh Jackman would come out and say, Oklahoma. Don't bring Hugh Jackman to this. He was just in the musical. Oh, that's another, that maybe is my nightmare. It's like, I'll be in the musical of Oklahoma while living in Oklahoma. But yeah, I knew immediately that my room would have the vug under the rug. And I think that goes into a fear of not knowing more than anything else. It's a fear of the unknown. And the big question has always been, what the hell is the vug under the rug? It was just a chunky cat playing. Now, despite being a racist dick, there is one quote from him that I actually agree with. I don't write for children. I write for people. Once a writer starts talking down to kids, he's lost. Kids can pick up on that kind of thing. That's why I refused to do a lot of the plays other middle school teachers would do. The things that cutesify stories too much and ignore the real shit that's going on in these kids' lives. It's like, yeah, I did a couple of out there comedies, but they were ones that had some pretty high comedy in it mm-hmm. and stuff. I, like, I didn't do a whole lot with fart jokes, I, but I did stuff that was like... Fart pop- jokes are high comedy. I did stuff that was like pop culture related or like it was stuff that the kids actually would get, but the adults would get more. But mostly I tried to do shows that focus on the shit kids are actually dealing with that we pretend they're not. Like I taught middle school. They're dealing with drugs and alcohol. They're dealing with unplanned pregnancy. They're dealing with abusive homes and abusive relationships. They're dealing with bullying. And we pretend that's not true in middle school theater. That's why I refused to do the cutesy shows because I found them insulting as a kid. I was not going to insult my kids that same way. And so I agree with him. When you start writing for children and not for people, you lose the, you lose the battle. They're not going to want to read a book if they feel like they're being talked down to. So that's Dr. Seuss, Theodore Geisel, Ted. And honestly, I could go way more into the racist stuff. And there are going to be a lot of articles this week coming out about the racist stuff. This is a very general overview. And this is still probably my longest bit I've done yet. If you are interested in learning more about the real Dr. Seuss and why I believe that we should read him actually in older grades so that kids can learn about subtext propaganda and race and how to spot racism, do some research this week. It's actually going to be very interesting. Oh, man, that was thank you for attacking like basically all of my heroes in a single story. And oh, man. Well, it's nice to know that I I did get to disagree with you about something mainly. I think Dr. Seuss is actually kind of good. Even though he was a bit of a racist asshole in, in his youth, he did try to correct it later on, even though he didn't apologize, which is progress. It for, is. Especially for um, a man of his age. And no, era. it goes back to my whole thing that I've talked about several times about heroifying people. Mm-hmm. We spend a whole week every year in elementary school heroifying this man, and then we never revisit him. Yeah. And in older grades, we should. In older grades, they should say, okay, remember this book? Let's take a hard look at it. What are we seeing now that we are older and understand things a little bit more? Because, you know, if you're reading, um, goodness, Mulberry Street, you probably won't even really notice that the Chinese character looks the way it looks when you're eight, nine years old. But when you're 15, you might look at it and go, whoa, this isn't right. And that's why I think we should revisit him. I'm not saying that we should take the books out of the schools. Oh, no. Um, But I do think it is worthy of discussion. And I do think we need to be cautious about which books we choose. Especially if we are committed to teaching diverse audiences, maybe those ones aren't the best choice where we where especially the ones where we view black people as savages. So remember how last week we talked about we're going to do, we're going to do something a little less heavy after our... I um, was going to and then I remembered it was Dr. Seuss week. Oh man. Well, it's okay because I... I have to ask my questions. Oh, you have to ask your questions. Fine. Go ask your questions. Will this be on the test that Dr. Seuss only wrote children's books because his ad agencies wouldn't allow anything else? Yes. 
Will his many racist exploits be on the test? No. And will the fact that racism remains in his books that have never been censored, but books that have had scary pictures have been? Wow. No, that wouldn't be on the test, but that's... We got rid of a terrifying monster, but we have not... Gotten rid of the real-life terrifying monster? The real-life terrifying monster. Oof. All right. So that's Theodore Geisel. Hi, Fizz. We got a a very happy cat who wants to sit on our laps, but can't right now. Oh, he wants to play. Look at that. Yeah, he's he's full of... It's Fezzik again. He heard us talking shit, so he's trying to get on our good side. Well, it's your turn. All right. Are you just... You're just not even going to listen to me. You're just going to play with the cat. See what you're doing. All right. So uh, this week, I am doing a book report. Yes. This book, I believe, was suggested to us. Yep. It's a book suggested to us. It is Dr. Mooter's Marvels by Kristen O'Keefe Aptkowitz. It was suggested to us by our dear friend Pliny the Elder, or at shit Pliny says. It's, again, I scratched the surface, like, very, very briefly scratched the surface on Pliny. This is an in-depth dive, and, oh, man, it just... I would check it out. It's really funny. Are you talking about Plenty? Oh, Plenty is really funny. Okay, I'm like, but I this, thought you were talking about your book again. This is not very funny, but it's really cool. It is about the early days of medicine and a uh, and a a doctor who was kind of a pioneer in surgery who worked with monstrosities and really changed the way surgery was done and how we thought about doctors. And also in an era in America that we kind of gloss, gloss over a lot too. So it's going to be... You ready? Buckle up, because this is going to be a trip. Also, I only took like three pages of notes, so it's going to be a lot of extemporaneous stuff. I had like seven. Yeah. We got to over 40, almost 50 minutes with mine. Oh, God. (laughs) Austin edits now. Okay, I feel like she's doing this just because I'm editing now. (laughs) No, I didn't know how much there was on him. Maybe you should do some self-editing. I did. Oh, God. I'll, I'll try to find something short next week. No, it's okay. It's fine. So, we will have a, a calm discussion about this later because that's what marriage is all about. Communication and passive aggressive editing. Yeah. So anyway, uh, Dr. Dr. Miller was born in um, 1811 uh, when his, par- his, his parents are kind of interesting because his dad, who was 25 when he got married, was kind of a successful businessman. And his mom, who was 15 when she got married, which was not illegal, but was even young by the standards of the day, like noteworthily like, whoa. She's a little bit young, isn't she? They got married anyway. She was from a fairly well-known family with, like, you know, they were related to, like, lots of big, wealthy Southern slave owners. Uh, he was born in 1811, and his, mo- his mother was only 18. And in 1814, it was a very bad year for him. His one-year-old brother died. Mm-hmm. His mom then took ill and died that autumn. And then his dad uh, got ill, and his business started struggling. Oh, Jesus. How old is he? He was three. Oh. So in 1818, his dad sent him to live with his grandmother so he could go to Europe to hopefully get treatment for his illness. He died in Europe, and at roughly the same time, his grandmother took ill and died. And he's three or four now. He is seven. Seven. And he has no living family members. Oh my goodness. And this is back before like people were even checking up on each other like this. No. So, I mean, he his family was like, they were def- like strongly middle class. He wasn't like destitutely poor. And he had a small trust set up by his father because his father thought, like, I might not live. So he needs to have, like, something. So, and of course, the problem is people didn't want him because they didn't under- really stand- understand how illness was spread. And they thought, oh my god, this kid's cursed. Yep, so that's they didn't, how it works. So they didn't want to adopt, so they want to adopt him. They finally found a uh, distant cousin of his mom's, Colonel Carter, who took him in. He was 
uh, lived in a big house in Virginia and owned hundreds of slaves. And he agreed to take him in, but would provide for him like food, clothing, and shelter. But he would have to make his way on his own. He wouldn't pay for like anything else. Mm-hmm. So he would ta- he would provide for him, but wouldn't guide him. So kind of okay, but not great. I mean, at least he had a place to sleep. Yeah. So uh, when Mood- when Doctor Mudder moved in, he brought with him what at the age of what was his first name? Thomas. Okay. Thomas Dent. I just like the idea of him being a seven-year-old named Dr. Mutter. Dr. Mutter. He's, uh, his possessions were a hobby horse, an actual horse, a bag of his mom's jewelry that he would end up like, you know, selling and using to finance some stuff. Sorry, for a second, I don't know why, but I thought you were going to say a bag of his mom's hair. It might have, I mean, he might have had a locket with her hair in it. That was a thing people did. So was hair art out of the dead people in your family? Yeah. Ooh, we should make some cat hair art. Ew, no, we are not those people. We are those people. No. Two trunks of clothes and an actual honest-to-God working gun. I mean, all seven-year-olds need their gun. America. He was also kind of spoiled. Through his entire life, he only wanted the finest clothes. He wanted to be very fashionable, very flamboyant. For him, image was everything. So he wanted to look good at all times. And that was expensive, which actually... Got him into trouble throughout basically his entire childhood up until he was a young adult with his guardian. He'd spend a lot of money. Colonel Carter would get the bill. He would get furious and yell at him. And he had promised to never do it again. Then he'd do it again. But he was also um, had a very sickly childhood throughout his entire life. He was never in great health. He had constant coughing. He'd have gout in his hands, which would kind of make them swell up and be painful throughout his entire life. When he was an adult, he, he went to Yale to study, and he almost died there from his illness. But because of the doctor's compassion and the people who took care of him there, he decided he wanted to become a doctor. So he went to uh, medical school in Alexandria, Virginia, graduated from there, and then went to Paris. Now, he couldn't, like, afford, like, going to Paris the normal way, like, just buying a ticket. He had to, like, beg and, like, you know, plead to become a ship's surgeon's assistant on a boat that was bound for Europe and, like, volunteered to, like, work. And he went, and he was horribly seasick the entire time, and almost died. <laughs> and it was a slow journey. It took a couple of months. And he finally got to, he finally got to England, and they went to Paris. In France at that time, everybody was guaranteed free medical care by the French government. And they had just the, some of the best medical schools. And it was so popular for Americans to go there to study medicine. They actually published special travel guides for doctors going to Paris. All right. For Amer- specifically, American doctors to go to Paris. They had their own, like, travel guides. And... They had these big hospitals. They had like, you know, a higher hospital just for women giving birth, hospitals for children, hospital specializing in surgery, and just entire like buildings of orphans and people like children given up. Yeah, they had a very expansive um, social welfare system in France at the time. And look at that. They haven't collapsed. And it's 250 years later. Sorry, I was just thinking buildings of orphans, kind of. Yeah, they just uh, they just piled up orphans. It's like their entire job was to stand very still. They'd <laughs> stack them and then use them to make buildings. It was the world's biggest human pyramid. We didn't even have the Guinness Book yet. Yeah. And so he went there, he studied medicine. And again, this book is really fun. I'd recommend reading it. They go into the stuff, like the very specifics. Like there was a hospitals in Paris spent hundreds of thousands of francs on wine because they didn't have anesthesia. Anesthetics then so that was the pain relief for surgery and treatment was wine isn't that kind of the same thing today same thing today but like official and it was free wine so it probably wasn't great wine but it was france so it's probably better wine than what we get hey do not diss my three buck chuck i'm gonna diss your three buck chuck 
So he, he stayed in Paris, studied medicine uh, until his trust ran out, ran out, and he went back to America, settled in Philadelphia, tried to start a practice. It did not go so very well because once he was back from Paris, Colonel Carter cut him off officially. He had to make his way on his own. And his extravagant lifestyle caught up with him. He wasn't really making many inroads because he was a fancy, fancy gentleman in a very Quaker city. Not too, not a very fancy place. And he was about to give up on Philadelphia and move back to France and hopefully try and start a practice there because there were so many Americans going there. He thought, my, now might be my chance. I could go there and work with the Americans in Paris. But a friend of his convinced him to stay and study medicine and teach medicine at one of the Philadelphia medical colleges. Philadelphia at the time was the place for medicine in america it had the best colleges cutting edge medicine and he got on as a professor there now i'm going to talk a bit about medicine at the time and philadelphia too because philadelphia was the fourth largest city in the world Uh, medicine at the time was very different because surgery was happening but it was very different than what we have now there's no pain relief they were you, you were not being knocked out for this you would be held down and hopefully you wouldn't bleed out so they're trying to complete these as fast as possible while you're screaming and whimpering in pain as they sawed off your leg or tried to take out a tumor. And this was done in front of an audience. Yeah, this was time. done in front of an audience. Like they're still called operating theaters. Yeah, no, this was like he was at a medical college. So all the doctors would be crowding around you while and watching you try to perform these surgeries and do these things. And so he was like doing all of this stuff with an audience. I mean, medical colleges will still have an audience about stuff. You do have to consent to it most of the time. Yeah. And I always do. I'm like, I'm assuming that everybody has been vetted and is actually here to be a doctor. So, <laughs> oh, no. but there was that one 15 year old who got in and was pretending to be a medical resident. <laughs> I think that was in Florida. Of course it was in Florida. It's very different. And again, infection was a problem. They didn't understand how disease spread. In fact, doctors and surgeons were just notoriously disgusting. At the time it was believed the uh, measure of a good surgeon was how blood-soaked he was. That if his clothes were not so stiff with blood they wouldn't stand up on their own, he wasn't working hard enough. Nowadays, so, that's just the measure of a good podcaster. Yep. How we covered are, in blood they are. We are completely soaked in blood. They didn't understand. And of course, Philadelphia was a large city, and it was full of disease. It was nasty. There was Industry was starting, but there was no real safety standards. So jobs were dangerous. Children were working in dangerous conditions. People were working 14-hour days, six days a week. And the only day they ever got off was the 4th of July. No labor laws. People were getting disfigured by on-the-job accidents. Women's clothing at the time was very large and made of natural fibers. So they'd be working around all of the various household things that were open flame, like cooking, even just moving around in the dark with lanterns. The slightest spark could ignite their clothes. Mm-hmm. And it was very common for like you know young women and all women to be hideously disfigured with burns. We never talk about that. Yeah. We also don't see it in movies about the time. No. There was actually a, this is unrelated to this, but there was a ball in France, which a, I think a king at the time was attending, in which a bunch of women caught fire and he actually, a lot of people died just because these big dresses caught fire. Ugh. So yeah, women were fire hazards because lots of delicate laces and silks. Women were not fire hazards. The patriarchy was the fire hazard. The modesty was the fire hazard. (laughs) Which was caused by... The patriarchy. There we go. So this was the world he was coming into. Also, doctors didn't really have any licenses or official training. You could just start saying you were a doctor. Medical schools were mostly, like, you come in, you'd watch some lectures, and the doctors at the time would quiz you and determine if you actually had learned enough. 
the problem is those doctors weren't necessarily good at what they did and even the teaching was bad it was mostly just lectures in which you were not which you were not to ask questions you're simply to listen to them talk sometimes they were dry many times they were horribly outdated and there was really no standard as to what you would learn or what you'd be taught between institutions organizations or even what was actually the best practice there was no type of organization that was just like i'm a doctor now <laughs> I declare bankruptcy. I declare doctorhood. <laughs> this is the type of environment he came into. He started teaching, and he did things differently than they had done in America. So yeah, that was he was coming into. Now he did he did things differently. He would ask. He would quiz students. He made sure his lectures were engaging. He got to know his students. He treated them like people, and he was actually a teacher instead of an expert lecturer. And he would make sure that his his students were not just listening to him, but they would have an understanding of what he said. And he was an amazing speaker. His students loved him. After his first year of teaching, his students actually wrote a letter asking him if he would publish his address to the students on his first lesson. And it was published and it was a bestseller. So he was like, again, very good speaker, uh, was trying to change surgery. And he did because not only was he good at teaching, he was good with patience. Bedside matter wasn't really a thing. Surgeons at the time would basically, like, if you they thought you weren't listening enough, there was one doctor who would famously slap you and knock you to the ground or hold you down while you listened so he could explain things to you. I had a doctor like that once. Yeah. and He told me to stop acting like a baby. I was going into emergency surgery at midnight and I was eight and I was crying because I was scared and he told me to stop being such a baby. Yeah, that was, basically, that was the bad doctors at the time, which apparently hasn't changed. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he brought in the bedside manner and these people would be operated on in these operating theaters would be just kind of carted out and brought home. He really wanted a like a recovery suite so he could monitor them and help you know stop infections by keeping things clean. And as a result, had fewer people die of infection. He was very radical and kind of against the standards because he thought cleanliness was a good thing. He also would take care of his patients. He would meet with them before surgeries. He'd go over what was going to happen with them. He would like meet them and like massage the areas they're going to work on. So it kind of deaden the area a bit. So when he did operate, it wouldn't be as painful. An example they give, he was correcting a cleft palate. Very dangerous at the time because it's prone to infection. They couldn't really use alcohol to deaden your pain because that increased the risk of you throwing up, which would guarantee like, infection. Especially because I'd imagine they were still largely fixing them on children who have a lower alcohol tolerance. No, this was an adult man. Okay. And... He was correcting this, and he was as gentle as possible with him. He had a rapport with him. He would, like, make sure he was doing okay during the operation. And when he was doing it, he was doing it very quickly and was, like, making sure it was fine. And then met with him frequently afterwards to be sure that he was recovering properly and his stitches were all staying in place. Bedside manner and pre-care and aftercare were a big part of what he did and part of why he was so successful. And one of his big passions was something that people just didn't deal with at the time. And that was what they called uh, monstrosities. Uh Uh-huh. Or radical surgery. Like, these were the women who were severely burned, people with birth defects, people who had, like, cysts on their eyes, or just all this stuff. Yeah, these are a lot of people who made their livings in freak shows. They were, some of them were just still called the monstrosities. Yeah, so he was correcting those in this uh, corrective surgery, which he had learned in France. It was surgery plastiques, which was the forerunner to plastic surgery. They called it radical surgery Mm -hmm. because it wasn't an immediate life-saving surgery. This was a quality of life improving surgery another big thing he did was the invention of the mooter flap yeah which is skin grafts didn't really work well back then because you know we didn't know like they try like skin of dead people and it would just simply rot and then you die yeah and they even tried it with your own skin but again uh, they didn't understand connecting blood vessels so they'd try and connect skin from other places and that wouldn't work he had seen some surgeries where they had taken a section of someone's forehead 
uh, cut it partially off, twisted it around, and built it into kind of a nose for this person on their fore- from their forehead skin. So it was still attached and it was still viable skin. He took that and with a woman who had burns around her like chest and neck, it made it so she couldn't really close her eyes, she couldn't speak, it mm-hmm. deformed her jaw to an extent. Mm-hmm. What he did was he cut away the areas of scar tissue skin. Then from the healthy skin on her back, he cut a flap, twisted it around, and connected it across her face. So she had like some level of mobility and could like move, close her mouth, do all that stuff again, which she hadn't been able to do since she was a child. So this big corrective surgery, uh, her friends and family thought she was completely unrecognizable. It actually gave her a quality of life. They still do something like that. Yeah. I think it's still called the Mutter Flat, but obviously it's not exactly the same thing. It's not exactly the same. Is it now the thing where they kind of like stretch your skin? Yeah, they do that too. Like yeah. they, they stick the, what is it, like saline under your skin to yeah, it's, expand? It's basically they use... I don't think that's the same thing. It, they use more or less breast implants to stretch out your skin so that they can cut away the infected affected area and then stitch the stretched skin back around where it yeah. was. It's, science is so cool. Science is really cool. He pioneered that and made it popular. He was very popular, and one of his students uh, decided declared him the Barnum of surgery because he was so excited, flamboyant. He was interesting. He had made you interested in the material, and he also had a very large collection of specimens that he would use for teaching, like they found in those houses recently of doctors, yeah. dead doctors, just jars of specimens. Yeah, he'd have like you know, that they're not sure they had permission to uh, take illustrations, like specimens, like large tumors, like deformed hands one of his favorites was this mask of a woman who had a large horn growing out of her head that was basically a wart and they made a cast of her face with the horn that was one of his favorite possessions and just all of this stuff which by the way she did have the horn removed and it was a very big surgery at the time i'm sorry going back to that woman with the scar tissue situation yeah i'm just thinking about how much that surgery had to hurt oh incredibly painful and again it had to be really fast why are you biting me draco He's, it's uh, after 3.30, and so he gets fed in an hour and a half. I was, like, just thinking, like, and but think about how much a rapport and knowing that this person actually gives a shit would make, not hurt less, but yeah. make you feel safer. And again, it's like, he would, his big thing was, like, explaining the surgeries to them ahead of time. Like, okay, this is going to hurt. This is what I'm going to be doing. You need to, like, try not to flinch away when I do this. <laughs> so there wouldn't be, So hopefully there weren't wouldn't be surprises, so he'd be less likely to flinch. Sorry, Draco just moved the mic. Draco, I think you need to get down, buddy. Yeah. Good boy. So he brought a big textbook about his surgical methods, and I did this. That became almost immediately obsolete with the invention of anesthesia. Obsolete? Obsolete. Because all of his things for pain management during surgery weren't as necessary with anesthesia. Because if you could have someone not experience pain during surgery, it was an incredible improvement. It was uh, They were less likely to die of shock. They wouldn't be moving around to cause accidents while you were operating on them. Uh, they wouldn't be screaming. They wouldn't be in this intense amount of pain, which you think is a great thing. And it was most of the world. Uh, there were some problems like the early ethers. They weren't mixed well. So you would never know the exact dose of ether someone was getting because there wasn't a very refined process. So either there'd be too little and you'd experience a lot of pain or too much and you could die. And there wasn't a great way of regulating that until much later. Mm-hmm. And also there were some problems with chloroform too, actually killing people more than ether. And so some people were hesitant about that. But in Philadelphia, Dr. Mutter had a big opponent of his use of anesthesia. And this was one of the biggest assholes I've ever read about, Dr. Meigs. We'll start off about him. Listeners, brace yourself. You're going to hear Maddie's eyes roll in a minute. 
<laughs> he was an early pioneer in women's medicine because, you know, uh, at the time, one in four infants died mm-hmm. in the first year. Uh, one in 200 mothers would die in t- childbirth. The average woman would experience seven pregnancies during her lifetime. And they didn't understand a lot about women's anatomy at the time. And he was a... At the time? Even now, but less than now. So he was a pioneer in working with women and women's health. But his reason for it was women need to be able to give birth to children. That is their only use. They are too, like, flighty and incapable of anything else. And he uh, was opposed to using anesthesia in pregnancies because pain was God's punishment for Eve for women. And how dare we, uh, you know, usurp the will of God. You know, it's not necessary like it is in surgery. Because if one in 10,000 women dies from anesthesia anesthesia in childbirth, is it really worth it? You'd be amazed at how often women still hear this stuff. I have been told by medical professionals that I am not worth it if I'm not going, if I'm like not trying to have children at this exact second, why should they bother treating me? And I'm like, because I'm a human being. And also I know a lot of women who have been told that experiencing pain during childbirth allows you to better bond with your baby. Oh, and just a couple more things about this guy that makes him an asshole. He want, he really wanted to live in the South, but his wife was from the North and hadn't experienced the horrors of chattel slavery. Like, you know, seeing people like, you know, children whipped, whipped away from their mothers in the street as they were sold, or like, you know, slaves wincing from the bleeding and infected whip wounds on their back. They tried to live in the South and she couldn't take it. So he made a move back North and he was really mad about that. Couldn't understand why she was so sensitive to it. Yeah. Nice guy. So yeah, he was an, he was a complete and total asshole. At the time, abortions were fairly common. Actually, one in three pregnancies was ended with abortion during this era. But there was starting to be... (laughs) Sorry, I just... I glanced down at the table yesterday and I saw just a couple of things written on a piece of paper. One in three pregnancies aborted, mutter flap. That was all that was on this piece of paper. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it was like my brief notes. My brief notes. Yeah, they weren't... (laughs) It was was not through, like, you know, as good a means as now. It was like... Just stuff shoved up in there to disrupt the uterine lining. Poisons um, in desperate cases being punched in the abdomen repeatedly. Uh Uh-huh. That's how one in three pregnancies were ended. Or at least attempted to be ended. Attempted to be ended. And again, he decided, no, we women's purpose is to have babies. And there was starting to be this life begins at conception, not as they thought it was then at the quickening when the baby starts moving around. Because why not? So he was one of the proponents of that early on. And quickening just sounds... That sounds like a horror movie word. It's a, it is a horror movie word because it means there's going to be a baby. <laughs> <laughs> and just, ugh. So, like, my fists are clenched right now. I want to go through time and I want to punch this dude in the abdomen repeatedly. Well, it's going to get worse. Oh, good. Because there was a case in which a uh, man who had uh, was poisoning his, his mistress at the time because she was pregnant poisoned her to try and get rid of it. And he was the expert witness saying that, no, he not only killed her, he killed a baby, even though it was like very early on and was one of the first legal precedents in life beginning at conception and caused a bunch of laws to be passed in Philadelphia that like was banning all abortion. I'm not allowed to walk out of the room in frustration during a podcast. Nope, you're not. You were in my heroes. So now I get to torture you with this. Hey, this guy was never my fucking hero. Nope. He's nobody. And also, I didn't ruin Stan Lee. I just said that he did some questionable propaganda stuff. However, uh, again, Dr. Mutter. It is important to not get venereal diseases. Yes. Dr. Mutter, though, loved it. He loved Anastasia. He was a giant proponent of it. 
and really helped spread it and popularize it in the United States. <laughs> Sorry, just helped spread it running through the streets, anesthetizing people. Yes, he was just throwing bottles of ether everywhere. <laughs> oh, also, I gotta put this out. Philadelphia was fucking insane. Well, isn't Philadelphia where Black Friday started? Isn't it always insane? Yeah, okay. Um, They used to have what they would call like these like police boxes because the cops were so afraid of getting jumped in the street. They just actually just hide in a locked box and try and enforce the law from there. <laughs> which worked great until uh, the roving... Until the doctor took one and it no, flew through space. Until the roving gangs realized, wait, we can just break into these boxes and murder the cops. So every time Philadelphia shows up in the news because their sports team won and there's a riot... It's been forever. There were also rival gangs of firefighters. Like, like some of them, there's one that they never really fought fires. They just go around and get in fights and they'd steal each other's like pump wagons and throw them in the river. There's one time a bunch of houses burned down because these rival groups of volunteer firefighters showed up and just started fighting with each other while the city burned down around them. It's only funny in, like, concept, not in actuality, obviously, but... I mean, just Philadelphia folks. It's always sunny there. And they're the ones with the terrifying mascots. Yeah, Gritty. Gritty's amazing. I love him. I have a phobia of mascots. Like, I had to leave an assembly because Casey Wolf was there. Casey Grant, Wolf is a bad one. Okay, Casey Wolf. It was the old costume with the um, hammer pants. So it was an old one and he, I was sitting in the front row and he kept coming near me and like dancing. And after a while I had to get up and leave. And honestly, I, I would have taken getting in trouble. And this was as a teacher. I would have taken getting in trouble for it. I don't think I would. If I had actually just said to my boss, I have a phobia of mascots. I stayed as long as I could. Probably would have been fine. But. So at this point, Dr. Motor's health was declining because he he'd always been sick, but he was getting worse. So at this point he was very successful and had the money to just go on a steam liner to Europe to seek treatment and some extra expert opinions. And unfortunately, the expert opinions he got was that he was dying and it was going to be sooner rather than later. And did, there was nothing they could do. Did they know what it was? They did not mention it. He'd just been in general poor health his entire life and he was getting worse. He thought briefly of just staying and living out the rest of his days in Paris and getting treatment there. But he decided that he needed to go back to America and secure his legacy, which was for him his students. And he had some very noteworthy students. Sorry, I just already understand that. I loved my students so much. That was the hardest part of leaving teaching was leaving them. Mm -hmm. One of his students went on to uh, refine the ether distilling process so that it was uniform and less likely to be dangerous. And only in the cases of greatest incompetence could it be done wrong and dangerously. And not only did he refine this process, and make a ether mask that worked well in all cases. He also released this information for free to the public so everybody could use it. He didn't patent it, even though he could have made just mountains of money off of this. He refined the process and he published it. He had another student who was from Cuba who went back to Havana and uh, through his research and studies figured out that yellow fever was being spread by mosquitoes. Another one of his students was the grandfather of like battlefield medicine and invented the concept of triage. Actually, a ton of his students were just in the Civil War. So because of one of his students, we were able to get Marie Curie later. Yeah. that It's just so cool. It's all connected, guys. Oh, yeah. It's all connected. Science is cool. Another one of his was uh, the surgeon for Stonewall Jackson's u- unit and eventually became the, like, chief surgeon of the Confederacy. He was, like, the chief battlefield surgeon. He was in charge of all of their surgeons. 
I recognize that that is important. That is important. That is an accomplishment. I disagree with the Confederacy. But, I mean, it's it's so much harder when it's a surgeon. Ugh. I mean, I can't imagine being a surgeon really on either side and being like, yeah, I'm just cool with letting these people die. He trained hundreds of doctors. And one of them was actually the first doctor to examine Phineas Gage after his railway accident. I love... Okay, I have a ukulele. And I named it Phineas Gage because I must have a head injury if I think I can learn to play an instrument. You can learn, anyone can learn to play an instrument. So he trained a lot of surgeons. And the other part of his legacy, he had his collection. So first of all, he had a colossal medical library and all of his surgical tools, which he gave, he gave away all of his tools to other doctors in the area and most of his library. And he also had his collection of like, you know, just specimens. Uh, it was about 2,000 total specimens. He tried to give them to his medical college, but they didn't have the room for it. So he um, eventually reached an agreement with the College of Physicians, which was like a national group, that they were going to take his collection. And as long as they would make a fireproof, a fireproof museum for it, they eventually did. They made the agreement three months before his death. And then uh, three years after it, it was completed. And that museum is still open. That is so cool. So you can go to... Philadelphia and go to the Muter Museum. They, it is one of the two places on Earth where you can see um, slides they made out of Einstein's brain. Tiny, I didn't know they did that. There are tiny 20 micron slices of Einstein's brain on slides that you can view in this museum. Oh my God. You were saying like, we have a reason to go to Philadelphia. Yeah, I absolutely, we need to go to that museum. It seems like, we love to go to museums of weird stuff. Like We've gone to the Psychiatric Museum in, uh, gosh, where is it? It's near Kansas City. Uh, St. Joseph? St. Joe, yeah. The Sklar we, Psychiatric Museum? Yeah, we went to the Museum of Death and we went to New Orleans. Yeah. And we go on ghost tours every place. Oh. Every town we go to, we try to find a ghost tour nearby. Yeah. Oh, we went to the uh, reptile house and... Where the snake wanted to eat me. And the uh, and the turtle wanted to be your best friend. Oh my god. Every time I walked past this giant snapping turtle, I'm talking like this thing had to weigh five times more than me. And it was just chill. Until I'd walk by, then every time it would just start swimming like it was trying to get out of its tank. And I'd walk away and it would stop. And then I'd come back. And it was only me that it, it would do this It wanted to with. be your friend. And then the snake wanted to eat me and they had to ask me to leave. Yeah, like you, yeah, we had to go up onto the second floor because like the snake was like, I'm going to eat you. Yeah, it was like a, I don't remember what Anaconda. it was. And they were getting it out for feeding and they kept like having to put it back in and they kept like, they looked over at me and they go, you need to leave. Like it's, it wants to come after you. We don't know what, so I must have some kind of reptile pheromone. Maybe. Go on. So yeah. So that museum is open and, oh, I've got some good news for you. Uh, Dr. Meigs did get his comeuppance. Uh-huh. Because in addition to being sexist, he was also really racist. Shocking. And in the uh, pro-abolitionist North. His reasons for wanting abolition of slavery wasn't a good one. He just didn't want the mixing of races and thought we just need to get rid of black people and was very publicly open about his ideas, which garnished him some initial unpopularism. Then he was not a proponent of keeping things clean and even with faced with direct evidence that he was spreading a disease amongst young mothers that was killing them. He denied it and got just torched in medical journals and his name was ruined at that point. So it's like, okay... This is far enough. We're done with you. I wonder how many children he forced his wife to have. Oh, God. It, it was a few. I, his, um, his, his, his grandson didn't like him. Good for his grandson. So, yeah, he got his comeuppance and he retired and was just kind of a miserable, grumpy old man until he died at the age of 77. It's not fair they got to live that long. Yeah. Some people are trash. Some people are trash. He, uh, Dr. Meigs, human garbage. Dr. Dr. Mooter, 
Not human garbage. Not human garbage. It's just so funny because, like, I'm curious to know how he would have turned out if he had gotten to stay with his family and gotten to keep being spoiled his whole life. Could he have turned into garbage? I don't know. Or was having to fend for himself from the time he was young something that kind of made him realize that people need kindness? I think the thing that, like, made him like doctors was the kindness doctors showed to him. So then he decided, I'm going to become a surgeon. The reason he liked surgery so much was because a lot of, like, they didn't know what was wrong with him. So it was a lot of guesswork and, like, try this, try this. Let's bleed you with leeches. I don't know. But with surgery, it was very definitive. Like, oh, you have this tumor. We're taking out this tumor. You've got this problem. We're doing this. It was a very A to B type of medicine. And he was great at that. And he loved the fact that it had clear answers and clear goals. And just it was a straightforward thing instead of a bunch of guesswork. Are you ready for some questions? I am. Will medicinal wine be on the test? Yes. Will Dr. Meigs be on the test? Yes. Will the high rates of infection and death and just misunderstandings about everything be on the test? Yes. Will the fact that France had universal health care hundreds of years ago and they're fine be on the test? The first part will. Yeah. Well, that was way less of a bummer than Radium Girls. I know. Thank you. This was... Thank you, Plenty. Yeah. Dr. Motors Marvels by Kristen O'Keefe Aptowitz. A-P-T-O-W-I-C-Z, or just ask your local librarian for help. And if you ever find yourself in Philadelphia, go to, what's it called? The Mutual Museum? Mutual Museum, yeah. See see some Einstein's brain, see some skulls, see some other just really cool medical specimens from not only his collection, but they've been adding to it over time, too. Because, I mean, obviously Einstein was, like, fairly recent. I really want to go to that now. Me too. It sounds awesome. It's still open. You can go there today. Actually, they were open until 5 o'clock today. So we've got like an hour. We can make it. Yep. Oh, no, it's in the East Coast. Never mind. Different time zone. They're they're closed now. Yeah, they are closed now. And also plane trips take longer than that. Not if we break all the laws. Of physics. So, yeah. So, did you learn anything today? No. Nothing? (laughs) What? (laughs) Fine. I didn't learn anything either. I already knew all of that stuff and wasn't... (laughs) Shocked and horrified and, like, saddened. You asked the wrong question. What was I supposed to ask? What did you learn today? What did you learn today? It obligates me to have learned something. Oh. I learned the fact that just developing a relationship with a patient can lower the chance of problems in surgery and other other areas of medicine. Again, he even did that with his students, too. He was personable and thought that... Interpersonal relationships were important, and they were. Mm-hmm. They still are. Yep, in medicine and in education. What did you learn today? Uh, I'd always learned that, like, you know, Dr. Seuss had some racist stuff. I just didn't know the extent of it. And also that Stan Lee worked with him. It sounds like it was for the Army, so maybe there were orders and I could justify a little bit, but not enough to, like, be totally... Now, Stan so- Lee di- didn't throw around the N-word, didn't say we need to kill all the Japanese people, anything like that. He really, it sounds like when it comes to working with Geisel, it sounds like he did just work on the venereal disease propaganda. <laughs> <laughs> he just worked on venereal diseases. Which, of course, sounds like things Stan Lee would do, but... See, the comics code did not support the venereal diseases. <laughs> But at the same time, it's not talk. It was talking specifically about going to these countries means you're going to get VD, and that's some racist shit. Yeah, Bob, I'm glad you went second because mine was a little heavy and yours was a lot lighter, even with Meigs in there. I just threw him in because like Meigs was like the counterpoint to like the progress and like humanness of Doctor Mutter. 
You know, I bet Pliny would have some suggestions about how to remove a horn from your head. Um, I bet it involves... Some kind of talisman, I'm ta- sure. A talisman made out of a shed snake skin with a stone that had been rested on a donkey for a night. Pliny, go ahead and feel free to chime in. Let us know how do you get rid of a horn on your head. And those of you who don't know this, um, how Pliny manages to communicate with us, it is at says on Twitter. It's a great Twitter account. Pliny the Elder just telling yep. us his wisdom through the ages. It's, it is eternal wisdom. And also, I did learn this. Apparently, Pliny invented Yelp. He went to and wrote about the qualities of every natural spring he knew, that he knew about. And he wrote about all of the curative powers and which ones are good and which ones were bad and which ones would give you visions of the future but ultimately kill you. Well, uh, where can people find us? Why, they can find us at On The Test Pod on Twitter, uh, at On The Test Pod on Instagram, at On The Test Pod at Facebook, and our website... OnTheTestPod.com And please remember to rate, review, and subscribe, especially if you're an iTunes listener. That actually is like super important for the numbers. I don't understand how it all works, but I know that it does. Because Apple owns all of our souls. It's like, I got a like weird off-brand like startup company's phone that I hadn't heard of. And it's been doing fine for the last two years. And the company's closed down and they're not supporting it anymore. So I'm going to have to get a new phone soon. And I'm really sad because I love this phone. Well, you and I can finally get on the same phone plan. Yeah. But then we're actually married. No, we can't do that. No, we can't really be married. No. How long have we been married? Yeah, we're about to hit our fourth anniversary. Yeah, we got married in 2016. Well, uh, Zumbi is three. (laughs) So. We got Zumbi on our first anniversary, which was a pure coincidence. Yeah, we had, um, one of our cats had recently died. So we decided that we were going to do something good for this shelter that we had gotten her from. They'd been, she was cat perfection. She was cat perfection. And they had been, the people who worked there when they heard she was sick were so nice to us. And and so I actually better remember when our anniversary is because it's one more year than Zumbi is. <laughs> well, this got off track. Oh no, our podcast got off track. That's what we do best. It is. This is okay, this is already like 17 hours long, isn't it? It's been 82 years. 84 years. Whatever. You keep getting it wrong. I'm going to let you drown, Jack. Then we'll be reunited on a ghost ship. And Celine Dion will be there. No, she's not allowed. Uh, that is that is our real hell. That is the <laughs> nightmare we're going to go into. It's like, we're like, oh my God, we're on the Titanic. Oh no. Is that the penny whistle solo from My Heart Will Go On <laughs> for forever? <laughs> no. I thought we decided the other day was that our hell is driving across Indiana. We're on the Titanic going across Indiana. <laughs> and the only song on the radio is the Penny Whistle solo from My Heart Will Go On. Why is the boat in Indiana? It's Why a is nightmare. It, how is it sailing across that desolate, dry land? I've driven cross country several times. And Indiana, I swear to God, gets longer every time. Ugh. Well, on that note, class, class dismissed. dismissed.